So I think I told you a couple weeks ago, I went to New York City and the temperatures were somewhere around 26 degrees. And I don't know, sometimes when I'm thinking about getting cold, I get scared. Do you ever get scared like I might be cold? Okay, maybe you're not like me, but sometimes just the thought that I might be cold, like, oh, concerns me. Because I have felt cold before and it's not comfortable. It's worse being hot, but cold is bad. So I, I was getting concerned about being cold. And one of the things, and you know, the Lord's always humbling me. One of the things I pride myself on sometimes, forgive me, is packing lightly. I just like, uh, how many pairs of shoes did you bring? I remember going to England and being so proud because I brought one pair of shoes and my friends all brought like three and four. And I'm just like, one pair, I'm such a disciple. Those shoes gave me such blisters that I ended up wearing my slippers through every like major site in England. So it's like, God's like, oh yeah, you pack lightly. I'm being humbled by that. But you know, when I was going to New York, I'm like, I'm packing lightly. I'm only going to take two pairs of slacks. I am just going to just, I'm going to do this. And so I had no idea how grimy and dirty they would get and that there'd be no washer and dryer in sight. And between the slush, the grime of the city, and hanging out with my two grandsons, eating ice cream, mine being healthy, there's not. It was like, I was, I was filthy. It was like, oh, I was taking a bath and a shower every day. And I had brought sweaters, but they were all cotton, not wool. And they weren't turtlenecks. And I was, had a cute scarf and I had a cute hat and it barely covered my ears. And you know what? To wear earrings in the cold is not good. It's like sticking out your tongue and touching a paw when it's frozen. They they like stick to the side of you and you're like, what are those ice cubes on each side of my ear? And I had these comfy boots with soles that weren't prepared for the ice. And I remember stepping off the curb and stepping into a slush puddle and the water just came up and went right inside and soaked my nylon socks because I wore nylon socks because hey, wool socks, my feet might get too hot. I, I meant like my toes were frozen. They were just like, we are frozen. Remember us down here? I thought, having lived in London for four years, that I was prepared for the cold. And before I left, I had this friend who goes to New York City very often. And she said, Cheryl, you're going to need my coat. And I was like, oh, thank you so much. And she, she gives me this coat and it looks like a sleeping bag. And I'm like, oh, and I've got this really really pretty black wool coat that's, you know, it's, it's one of those deals from Marshall's that looks like it's classy, but you know, you're the only one who knows it came from Marshall's and it just looks just so nice. And I wanted to take that and brain's like, I wouldn't take that if I were you. I take, you know, Carol's coat. So I ended up taking Carol's coat and I'm telling you, Carol got blessed every time I walked outside the door. She also gave me a scarf and hat and said, you're going to need these. And I just was like, I I like my cute stuff, but I took them. And I'm telling you, by the end of the trip, I'm wearing that scarf and that hat and everything I own underneath because it was so, so cold. It had a wind chill factor that took it down to 16 degrees. And so every time you stepped out, you just felt like you were assaulted by the cold. I needed the right clothes. The right clothes were essential for New York. When Paul visited Ephesus, he realized that there was a right wardrobe for Ephesus. 
When he wrote to the Ephesians, he was telling them about the wardrobe they needed for the place they lived. So he wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 17, about what they needed to pack, what they needed to put on every day so they could be impervious to the cold chill of evil that lurked in Ephesus. So he told them that, first of all, they would need the belt of truth. There were so many temples to so many different gods. We know of the temple to Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. But there were other temples. It was a very idolatrous place. And they would need the belt of truth. They would need the breastplate of righteousness. They would need to stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because especially in a place like Ephesus, all had sinned. You know, Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own home. And for those Ephesians to get saved, they were in a community where people knew them and could say, wait, you did this and you did that. And they were going to need that breastplate of righteousness to remember that their righteousness was not what they had done or who they were but because of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. They were going to need their feet shot with the preparation of the gospel of peace. They were going to have to remember what their purpose and mission in life was. Now that they're Christians, to remember that it is not about us. It's not about enriching ourselves. It's not about living as comfortably in Ephesus as possible. It is about putting forth the gospel, the gospel of peace. They would need the shield of faith. They would constantly have to hold up that shield. Again, who God is, what God has done, what God has promised. Because there were constantly going to be fiery darts. Fiery darts flew through Ephesus. And only the shield of faith is 100% effective in quenching the fiery darts. Only the shield of faith. They were going to need the helmet of salvation. They were going to need to remember who they are and to have their thoughts guarded by their identity in Jesus Christ. A helmet would distinguish what team you were fighting on or for. And they needed to put the helmet of Jesus Christ. Again, a helmet is there to what? To protect the mind. And they were going to need that protection in Ephesus. And finally, they were going to need the sword of the spirit. Because it's not just about defending. It's about taking ground. It's not just about defending It's about taking ground. Sometimes we're only thinking about protection and we're not thinking about going forward. Would you agree as women? We're just thinking about protecting, you know, just insulating, being safe. But the sword of the spirit and the sandals of the gospel were for going forward. I do love that story in the Old Testament in the book of Chronicles about Shema, who stood in the field of lentils with his sword 
and just defended it from the Philistines. He just stood in place, but he's like, you're not taking this field of lentils. I mean, you know, like a field of beans. I'm not moving. I love this because this used to be a bean field. And the Lord always speaks to me about just stand. Stand with the armor on. Stand with the sword of the spirit. And just don't let the enemy take ground. Because I will tell you, I am a lover, not a fighter. I am more interested in if we're all getting along. Is everybody happy? How's the team? Instead of like, let's fight the enemy. It's like, um, could you just leave us alone? Because we're having a really good time here. You know, could you just moose? I don't want to fight. But you know, I love the fact that when we are armed up, when we are armed up, if we just take that sort of the spirit, if our feet are shod, we're going to take ground. We're going to hold ground. We're told that not only, not only did the field, not only did the field not go to the Philistines, that the Philistines were driven back and they suffered great losses that day. We need to be armed up just like the Ephesians needed to be armed up. Ephesus was a very, very dark place. When Paul first arrived in Ephesus, he met some disciples there. And the first thing, his first concern for these disciples, it was about their spiritual wardrobe. Because the first thing he asked them is if they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said to him, we'd never even heard of that. And he says, so what baptism were you baptized into? And they said, the baptism of John. So these men were disciples. Now, they weren't disciples of John. They were disciples. They believed in Jesus. Again, you're mistaken if you think that the testimony of Jesus remained in Israel alone. It went out throughout the world. Remember, Jesus was crucified at Passover when all the Jewish males were required to be in Jerusalem. In the book of Acts, we see Paul constantly trying to get to Jerusalem for the Passover. This is a time when the Jewish males were there and that testimony had gone out. Remember, it was at Passover time that Peter preached the message about Jesus Christ. And and what did they say? They said that the Cretans and all these other Jews, Arabic Jews, and all those that had come to Jerusalem heard in their own language the wonderful works of God. And they took that to wherever they lived. So the testimony of Jesus was going out into all the world. But here's the difference. They heard the testimony of Jesus, but they did not know that they could have a personal relationship with Jesus, that they could receive him into their hearts. Remember that Jesus in John chapter 20, we're told that Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That was the born again experience. Then in Acts chapter one, he tells them to wait for the promise of the father, the anointing, or when the Holy Spirit would come upon them, epi, and they would become witnesses all over the world. So you've got this receiving 
There are a lot of people that believe the testimony of Jesus Christ. They believe he lived. They, they might believe he was good man. They believe in the miracles. Some even go so far as to say, I believe he was the son of God. I believe he died on a cross and I believe he rose again. What they don't realize is that they can receive Jesus, that they can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ will make his residence within them. We're told in Colossians that Christ might make his home in you. And that's what the Lord desires to do, to make his home in each one of us. And how does that happen? It happens when we, when we admit that we're sinners, that we cannot earn our way to heaven, and that we need the cross of Jesus Christ, that he becomes our sacrifice to God for our sins. In John chapter six, Jesus said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And we're told that a lot of disciples turned away and said, Those were, that's weird. That's just too heavy for us. But Jesus was saying, unless my death and my blood covers your sins, you can't get to heaven. But if you make my sacrifice your sacrifice for sin, if you allow my blood and say, I need the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse me, from my sin, and we're told in the word of God that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses a man from every sin. That's when we enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and we never, ever have to be alone again. I don't know about you. I do not like to be alone. I scare myself. I don't want to be alone, but I love the fact that I can talk to Jesus anytime I want to, and that I am never, ever, ever alone. Sometimes when I'm walking, I pray out loud. And I'm so glad I just put the cell phone bud in my ear and just carry my cell phone so people think I'm, you know, talking to a human. But I'm just, I'm just seeking the Lord. I'm just praying, and I never, ever have to be alone. You know, one of the reasons that I lack a testimony of being delivered from drugs or alcohol or other vices is that I received Jesus into my heart at two years old, and I've never wanted to live without him. I've never wanted to try to do earth or life without Jesus Christ. He has been my best friend. He's helped me get out of so many scrapes and trouble and avoid spankings. He has just been my greatest advocate. Maybe you heard the story that my dad told before, but he was about to spank me and he said, Cheryl, do you know what the Bible says about this? And he fully expected me to say, spare the rod and spoil the child or something along those lines. And I looked at him and I'm telling you, I was four years old, so it had to be the spirit of God prompted me. And I looked at him and I said, be kind one to another, (laughs) tenderhearted and forgiving even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And do you know what he said to me? That's right. (laughs) I don't want to do life without Jesus. These poor men, they were disciples of Jesus. They believed in Jesus, but they're trying to be strong in this ungodly place. And they don't have that personal relationship. Like those people that you meet and they're saying, I'm trying to do the Ten Commandments or I'm trying to live by the Beatitudes. They can't do it. Nobody can do it. 
except Jesus. And we enter into his righteousness when we receive Jesus. We receive the righteousness of Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins. So Paul was saying, you need a relationship with Jesus Christ. You need the helmet of salvation. You need a full identity with Jesus Christ. And when these 12 disciples were baptized in the name of Jesus, in those days, it signified a full identity with Jesus Christ. They then put on the helmet of salvation. Paul goes a step further and says, now I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would come upon you. And we're told in Acts chapter one, that the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming upon us, this, this second work, if you will, is that we might be witnesses. And in Ephesus, they needed that extra power to be witnesses, to stand and withstand and be an example in the midst of. I have a a young girl who calls me every once in a while. I love it when she calls. She's just such a blessing. And she called me last night and she was talking about, she's a model. And she was telling me about uh, what these other models were doing. And it was like disgusting. And I was, I was praying for her because she needs the power of the Holy Spirit to stand and withstand. And she was telling me about some other girls that she models with that have claimed to be Christians, but she sees them giving into and becoming a part of um, this spirit of the world, so to speak. You know, one, one girl who calls herself a Christian just moved in with her boyfriend. And it's just that kind of no longer a witness for Jesus Christ. When you're doing everything that the world's doing, when you're quarreling, when you're jealous, when there's competition, when there's anger, then you're living like the world. There's no difference. But the Holy Spirit comes upon us and he makes us witnesses. He gives us that extra unction. And so that's what you have here. They were not fully clothed. The cold could still penetrate. Next, he wants them to be completely, these 12 men still, with the identity of Jesus Christ, the helmet of salvation, it's also the belt of truth. You need to know the truth about Jesus Christ. You need to know the reality of the way things are. The Bible tells us in Proverbs that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. Twice it tells us, chapter 14, chapter 16. It's a way that seems right. What is it trying to communicate to us? That we can't always trust our eyes because sometimes something will seem like this is the way to go, but it's the way to destruction. We need to see the truth. Truth is sometimes hard. It presents us with realities that we'd really not like to see. You know, they say ignorance is bliss. And sometimes finding out the truth about a person, it just breaks your heart. No, they didn't. They aren't. Oh, but we need to know the truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, thy word is truth. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
The truth is in Jesus, who is the word of God. This is the word of God. This is the book of truth. And we need to be girded. We need to be encompassed. We need to be surrounded by truth. Why? Because there, we live in a culture of lies. The Ephesians lived in a culture of lies. The culture of lies. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. No doubt they said all roads lead to God's. They had these superstitions. They had these incantations that they did. And these disciples of Jesus, those who were going to walk with the Lord, needed the belt of truth. So Paul, for three months, reasoned and persuaded in the synagogue. And then when there was opposition, he moved to the school of Tyrannus. And there he continued for two years, establishing these Ephesian believers in the truth. Because Paul recognized how important the belt of truth is. Because the belt of truth holds everything together. If you don't have the belt of truth, nothing will stay on. It was the most important piece that the soldier could put on because it held all the other pieces together. We need the truth just like they did. Paul knew that in this dark place of Ephesus, the devil had his wiles. We're told again in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says that we need to be fully clothed in the armor of the Lord because of the wiles or the schemes of the devil. The devil is always plotting, always planning. He is relentless. And so we need to be fully covered, fully dressed. And that's what the Ephesians needed too. Like my friend, Carol, who knew I needed a better coat than my fashionable Marshall's variety and made sure I took that aubergine colored sleeping bag with me that zipped at my ankles all the way up to my neck. I'm so glad I took that because I would have died in that cold a hundred times over. So Paul, having been in Ephesus, experiencing it, knew that these Ephesians needed to be fully clothed. There was not one piece of armament that could be omitted. All was necessary. We're told also in Acts chapter 19, in verse 11, that unusual miracles by the hands of Paul were done. This word unusual tells us that this wasn't a custom with Paul. This isn't something that Paul practiced. This was something that happened almost inadvertently. We're told that handkerchiefs, and aprons taken from Paul's body, laid on the sick, and the sick were healed. Laid on the demonic, and the demons came out. I mean, this is a powerful manifestation of God working. But I want to say 
that it's also superstitious. These people already had superstitions like this, and now they're taking their superstitions, and they're doing it with Paul. And you notice how Paul's Paul doesn't give in to this. Paul doesn't begin to identify himself as a healer. He stays the course of the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, and the breastplate of Jesus' righteousness. And his feet shod with the gospel of the preparation of the gospel of peace and the sword of the spirit. He does not take off his armament to become a healer. In fact, it's identified as unusual. God's going to do what he's going to do, but I know the calling on my life. I know what God has given me, and I know the importance of the truth. I know the importance of the gospel. I know the importance of the word of God. I know the importance of being in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and holding up the shield of faith. And I'm not putting these down. Now, I say this because success can be a while of the devil. You know, we're always looking for methodologies. We're women. We cook. We like recipes. We do. You know, this was my grandmother's recipe. It always turns out. I like those never-fail recipes. I told you I have a never-fail pie crust. I love that recipe. I use it all the time. And I like it because it's, it's fail-safe. And so as women, sometimes we want to go to that thing that, that doesn't fail, that we want a methodology. And it's so tempting when it comes to the word of God to go to methodologies. But you know what happens? Our faith goes into the handkerchiefs. Our faith goes into the aprons instead of the word of God, instead of God who is the healer. How many times have you had a man or heard of a man or a woman being promoted as a healer? They've got the gift of healing and then their ministry becomes all about healing and the gospel gets skewed and interrupted and people come just for healing and the people never get saved. They might get healed, but they don't get saved. This was unusual. What I love is the fact that Paul said, I'm not giving into this. This is unusual. God used it. God is great. But Paul let it be God's miracle and not Paul's miracle. He didn't take credit for it. He didn't start Paul's healing ministry and say, hey, I don't have to do tents anymore. In fact, I read one common commentator who said that he believed that while Paul was making the tents, people were stealing his handkerchiefs and aprons and taking them away. Can you imagine Paul getting up going, oh no, where's my towel? Not again. Where's my apron? I just can't keep up with this. They were taken from him. He wasn't saying, here, take this handkerchief or take my apron and put it on them. He was holding the course of the gospel. You see, the gifting of God does not identify us. And it is so important that we do not find our identity in the gifting that God has given us, but in the gifter, God. Because, you know, the gifts can be taken away, but God and a relationship with God can't. I, I am Cheryl, God's weakest servant. That's who I am. At the end of the day, You know what I really identify myself as? Not the servant of Jesus Christ. To me, that's a little lofty. I might be almost 54 years old, but you know what I am or who I am? 
I'm God's little girl. That's who I am. How many of you are just God's little girl? Yes. Don't you still feel it? We're so immature at times. We, please hold my hand. It's a parking lot. You know, please take the wheel. It's a freeway. We just need the Lord so desperately. That's our identity. I'm God's little girl. And he can do what he wants with my life. Paul was not about to give in to conceit on how God was using him. Remember earlier in Acts chapter 14 in Lystra, they wanted to hail him as a God. And he said, no, I'm a man with a nature just like yours. At the end of the day, Paul identified himself not only as a bond slave of Jesus Christ, but Paul, the chief of sinners. He knew that while of the devil and knew how important to find his identity in Jesus Christ, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith. Paul knew the importance. We see what happens without an identity in Jesus Christ with these itinerant Jews, these sons of Sceva. Now, in this time, there used to be roving bands of young Jewish men who would go about with a, with a ministry of exorcism, so to speak. When Jesus was accused of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, he said, if I'm casting out demons by Satan, who are your sons casting out these demons by? Jesus went on to say that a house divided against itself If Satan is trying to cast out Satan, then his house will surely fall. So we know that these were roving bands that were trying to exercise demons. And so here's this roving band. And what they've seen is they've seen Paul's success in casting out demons. No doubt they took note of these handkerchiefs and aprons and the deliverance that came to those people that these handkerchiefs and aprons were applied to. And they're thinking, okay, this is great. So they go into a house and there's a demon possessed person in this house and they begin to do their ritual. But this is what they say. We adjure you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Boy, that's like being, I'm a grandchild of the second generation of the third cousin of the fifth friend of Abraham Lincoln. You know, it just is not going to work. As they said, God has no grandchildren. And the demon says to these itinerant exorcists, Paul, I know, Jesus, I know, but you have no covering. (laughs) And we're told that this demonic spirit prevailed over them, had the upper hand, and they fled naked and wounded out of this house. They had no power against the evil in Ephesus because what? They did not have the shield of faith. They did not have the breastplate of righteousness. They did not have the helmet of salvation. They weren't ready for this type of force because they were not identified or dressed by Jesus Christ. Those hearing the story 
realized that they needed the helmet of salvation. When you see a demonstration like that, and you realize the danger that you're in and that you have no covering, you recognize that you need Jesus Christ. I was just reading about um, a man who was, um, he was a news reporter in England at the time of World War II. He was an outspoken atheist. But when he saw Hitler and he heard about the concentration camps, he became a believer. Isn't that interesting? In the face of evil. Now, there's some people who look at evil and say, I can't believe that there is a good God because I see evil and pain. This man instead looked at evil and pain and said, I believe there's a God. Because he realized if there was no God, then you could not call evil, evil and pain, pain. Because there'd be no point of reference. When he realized that the Nazis had no regard for justice and the word meant nothing to them, that justice was whatever they felt was right, he gave his life to Jesus Christ because he wanted truth to hold him up. Those in Ephesus hearing this story realized we need a full identity with Jesus Christ. And it's interesting who it affected the most. When you read this story, you realize the people that were affected the most were the people that were receiving the word of God from Paul. These were believers. It says the believers came forward confessing their sins and giving up these occultic books and things that they'd still been holding on to. In other words, there was this compromise. We, we want Jesus, but we want this as insurance in case Jesus doesn't work for us. We're not quite ready for that full identity with Jesus Christ. But when they saw that the sons of Sceva lacked that protection, they said, we're putting on the whole armor. (laughs) We're getting rid of everything else we trusted in. We're told that they brought forward their, their books of incantations and witchcraft, and they had this huge book burning. Now, we're told it was 50,000 pieces of silver. That's how much these books were worth. In the modern day, we're talking millions and millions of dollars. Not one million, not two million. We're talking several million dollars. That's how much it was worth. And what a waste, right? I could have sold it to some other Satanist. They could have really used it. You know, these believers said, we don't want anybody entrapped by this. We're just getting rid of it. Years ago, my, um, and I'm talking years and years ago because... My daughter's just turned today. She's um, 34. She might not like me telling that out loud, but ha-ha, I did. Um, oh, I'm sorry, she's 33. She really wouldn't like me saying she's 34. She's 33. I'm 54. Got to get these straight. Anyway, um, she, 21, there you have it. She was, um, there was a point she wasn't walking with the Lord. And we were living in England. She was here. And we came over, and she had all these CDs. And she said, you know, I just, I want to be a Christian, but I really love my music. And I put an investment in this music. And the music was just really vile. I hate to say this, but it was vile. She was raised in a Christian home, and this was not good music. And there's some secular music that I don't think is vile. Like some enchanted evening. (laughs) But there there is some vile music out there. Would you agree? 
And, and she had it. And she owned it. And she invested in it. And she thought it was going to make her really cool. And so Brian said, I'll tell you what. We're going to buy your music from you. We're going to buy it from you. And I'll buy it all. And so Brian gave her $300, wrote out a check, which I was like, oh, great. That means we're going to be eating beans and rice for a month. But anyway, he gave her the money because we're on a missionary budget at that time. He gives her the money, and we've got this hefty bag, right? We took a hefty bag in a suitcase to England that had all of the CDs, the cases of these CDs. So we get to England, and Brian wants to just throw them all away. And Char my oldest son at the time, he says, dad, I could get money for these things. I could take them to, um, there's a place in London and Richmond where I could trade these in and get some money for this music and why waste it? And I was naughty. I was thinking of that $300 we paid and I was thinking, yeah, let's just sell it. Brian's like, I don't feel right about selling it. And I prevailed and I said to Brian, look, Char needs money. He can have a little spendy money. Let's let him sell it. So we open up the bag and we realized that Kristen took every single CD out of the case. We've got nothing but a bunch of cases. And I'll tell you, Brian wailed. And I, I've only heard him wail twice. <laughs> Both times it was over our daughters. He was crying. And I was crying too. And we got on our knees and we began to pray. And you know what the Lord told us? Don't say a word about this to her. Don't say a word to her. I'm working. So... Kristen came to Jesus, fully to Jesus, her whole identity with Jesus about four weeks later, and she moved back to England. And I'd find that little broken girl on the staircase or in her room or at the kitchen table with her Bible open, just reading and loving Jesus. I think I told you this before, when she came back to Jesus and she came to Calvary Chapel, London, the people, because they all had testimonies, they queued up, lined up, to hug her and kiss her and tell her welcome back. It was the most beautiful thing. I was sobbing. I was holding my stomach. I was sobbing so bad. She was sobbing. They were sobbing. It was beautiful. But one of the interesting things is after Kristen got married about um, seven months later, I turned to my niece and I said, you know, I haven't told anybody the story of the CDs. And I said, you know, I just didn't know what was going to happen. And she said, oh, Aunt Cheryl, you don't know? You don't know? And I said, no, I don't know. She said, the day you left, Kristen pulled out the box and said, what have I become? I just ripped off my mom and dad. What is going on with me? And she said, we went out to the trash can and we broke every single one in half. And Kristen gave her life back to Jesus. You know, naughty mother was going to sell them and make a profit. But Jesus intervened and said, no, these are not going to defile one other person. They're out of here. I have another friend. I have friends. Her name is Lisa. And she had a vast art collection of naked statues and naked women. She had been an art dealer. She gets saved. She has a Bible study in her house. They come to her and they said, Lisa, the guys in the church, they're uncomfortable with the Bible studies in your house. (laughs) She's like, why? You know, what's wrong? And they're like, it's your artwork. And she said, she looks around. She's like, 
oh, you know, greatest Diana of the Ephesians. She sees, you know, all these naked busts and stuff. And she goes, okay, I get it. So now she's praying. What do I do with all these things? She said she collects them. And she's going to maybe sell them because they're worth so much money. They're art, right? And she said instead, she invites all her girlfriends to a burning at the beach. And she took all of that artwork and she burned it. Now, I'm not saying burn your artwork, but I'm saying this was her conviction because she wanted to be fully identified with Jesus Christ and she wanted to get the brothers back in her house. Yeah, because, you know, she wanted to get married. Come on. So, you know, get the brothers back in the home. But this is what God led her to do. You know, we look at that and go, what a waste. That's what Judas said, isn't it, when Mary uh, broke the alabaster box and poured the ointment out on Jesus. And that's what the world would say. What a waste. You Christians, you just waste. It's art. You do without one what you want. But that's what they did. And we're told that, that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. And in verse 20, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Because what happened? These believers got fully dressed and they begin to take territory with the sword of the spirit and their feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Paul at this time purposes to leave for Macedonia Much territory has been taken, and he's ready to go into new territory. He's fully equipped. He's equipped these Ephesians for over two years. But before he leaves, a spiritual battle comes just suddenly. And that's often how spiritual warfare happens. I mean, there's the climate, and you kind of get used to the climate, And then the wind chill factor happens, you know? You're like, I can do 26 degrees with all my equipment on. But then all of a sudden, the wind comes, and it's a wind chill factor. And it seems to just be able to penetrate everything you're wearing. And what we hear about is Demetrius, the silversmith. He's just doing his work. And all of a sudden, this thought comes to his mind. Your business is going down. You're not going to be able to support your wife and family. No one's going to care about Diana anymore. And he becomes obsessed with Paul. He becomes angry with Paul. And then he goes to these other silversmiths who make shrines and and are part of the guild that makes these shrines to Diana. And he tells them, We're going to lose all our money. We're going to lose our identity. We're going to lose our importance in this society. Diana's going to lose her importance or Artemis. It's going to be over because of Paul. And we need to get rid of Paul. And we're told that these men, these silversmiths, all of a sudden, they're all filled with wrath. That is quite an over an overreaction to Paul preaching the gospel. You know, there are less followers, but all of a sudden they realize their business is in jeopardy and and they want nothing less than to grab Paul and put him before the magistrates and the city of Ephesus. 
There, some estimate that the city of Ephesus had half a million people. Others estimate that it was much smaller than that, probably about 50,000. We don't know. But we do know this, that the amphitheater in Ephesus seats 25,000 people. And we know that Demetrius and his cohorts begin to stir up the people in Ephesus and they all ran towards the amphitheater and some of the mob went to grab Paul but couldn't find him and so instead they grabbed Gaius and Aristarchus who was a Macedonian and they took them into the amphitheater. They've got them up in the front and it's total mayhem. Most people don't know why they're there. Everybody's shouting a different thing. Then a Jew named Alexander stands up and some people said he just wanted to disassociate himself with what was going on with Paul. Like, we're Jews. We don't agree with his teaching. But when he started to speak, the crowd started chanting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So loudly, so long, two hours. Can you imagine? Two hours they chanted this. You know what that tells me? They didn't believe it. Because if you believe it, you don't have to keep saying it to yourself over and over and over and over again. Once will be enough. But they had to keep chanting it. And there they are. And finally, a city clerk gets up after two hours. Maybe they were getting tired. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. I know that one of my ways of disciplining my children is when they would have like their fits at two, I had a fit chair. And it was, you know, just sitting kind of off to the side and they could go, they could do anything they wanted in that fit chair. They could scream as loudly as they wanted to. They could say, mommy is stupid. I didn't care. As long as it was in the fit chair, they could do whatever they wanted. And I remember one time Kelsey was having a total meltdown and I put her in the fit chair. And I said, go ahead, you stay there. She wanted to hold her own drink and we were insisting on helping her and she got so mad because, you know, she could do it herself at, you know, two. So I just had her in the chair, just go sit there and the rest of us are just going to have fun and you just scream. And I remember she was just like, ah, ah. and then pretty soon she's going, ah, 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 and then she gets up and she goes, okay, I'm done. I was like, great, join the party. And so we did. And she let us, you know, give her a drink with a straw. But, you know, I think this is what it is. Great. Ta-da. You know, it just got tiresome. It got old. I got to tell you, I was with a friend yesterday. She has this dog. It's a fat chihuahua. And you could, you could tell this chihuahua knows it should jump up and go running to the door to see who's there. But I'm sitting down, the chihuahua's right there, and it's laying down, and somebody comes to the door, and the, the chihuahua literally looked at me and went, arf. <laughs> arf. Arf. It was like, and it really sounded like arf. I was like, I've never heard a dog like that. It actually sounds like arf. I can spell what you're saying, A-R-F. It was like the most amazing thing. You could tell the dog, it was like just so over it. Do you know how many times I've run to that door and it's just been my master and I feel so stupid? I'm just going to sit here. Arf. Arf, arf. You know, it's kind of like, they pay me to do this. They give me chicken. So I have to. Arf. Arf, arf. 
I think that must have been after two hours, you know? Arf. <laughs> Greatest Diana of the Ephesians. Finally, they're ready to listen to a city clerk. And the city clerk says something just so incredible to me. He says, you know, we could be in trouble for this assembly today because there's really no charges to bring against Paul. There's nothing. Because he's never, ever desecrated or robbed the temple of Diana, nor has he ever spoken against Diana. Paul had the breastplate of Jesus Christ on. He had the breastplate. He was so covered. The Ephesians wouldn't let Paul into the amphitheater. The officials who were believers wouldn't let him into the amphitheater. They said, Paul, this is not for you. You're covered. You don't need to come in here. And what do we see? We see that the Ephesian believers were also covered in that amphitheater. There was no charge to bring against them. Paul never desecrated a temple. He, he, it wasn't important to tear down the temple of Diana. All he needed was to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. He didn't need to tear down Diana or her image. All he needed to, was to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. And Diana's image would be torn down by God's hands and not his. All we need to do is to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. The sword of the spirit exalts the name of Jesus Christ. And all we need to do is hold the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Exalt the name of Jesus Christ and the temples will fall down. Today, all that's left of the temple of Diana in Ephesus and other temples have like walls or, um, you know, facades. There is only one pillar left of this great wonder of the world. One pillar that shows where the great temple of Diana used to be. Our climate that we live in is not unlike the Ephesian culture. Maybe things aren't so uh, clear or visible, but we still live in an environment that is rife with spiritual power We still see lives that are overtaken by demonic forces, be it drugs, uh, depression, cutting, sex, promiscuity. We still see these forces intact. Paganism, immorality, this, this worldliness. They're still there. And just like the Ephesians needed to be fully dressed for the climate that they lived in, we too need to be fully dressed. You know, sometimes because we live in Southern California and we really don't need the wool sweaters. And if we put them on in the morning, usually by the afternoon, we've got them tied around our waist. We've gotten kind of soft and we've forgotten to get fully armed up. And so there are times that we get attacked and we get upset and we can't understand what it is and what's going wrong. This is the time to take inventory and say, am I fully dressed? Am I fully dressed? How did that thought get in? How did that thought get in? That, you know, that thought like, 
you know, Jesus would rather have someone better. Or you're not forgiven. How did that get on? <gasps> did I put on the helmet of salvation today? Am I fully identified with Jesus Christ? Do I have the breastplate of righteousness on? Or am I st- trying to stand in my own righteousness or my own good works? I get to, I, I, I finally, I'm in something and I'm thinking, I can't do this. This is too hard. <gasps> Wait, are my feet shod with the preparation of the gospel? Have I lost direction? Have I forgotten the purpose that I'm here? Do I have the belt of truth? Am I believing lies? Or am I standing in the absolute truth of what Jesus has done? Do I have the shield of faith up? And I am, am I believing and knowing it's all about what God can do and God has done? Because it's only the shield of faith that will quench those fiery darts of the enemy. You know, we women... We get a letter and we read it the first time through and we know it's from a mean person so we have to read it 20 times because we want to find out every mean thing they said. We're reading between the lines. We're reading between the words. We're holding it upside down. We're putting on the record player, playing it backwards. We want to know what did they really mean because I know. No, forget that. Read it the first time. Take it at face value and go, aren't they nice? And get rid of it real quick because you know what I feel like? We become forensic Forensic spiritual warfare people. The, 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 the fiery dart heel, hit the shield. It fell off. It was quenched. And what do we do? We relight it and say, now, if it had hit its target, how hard would it have hurt? Oh, oh, that would hurt. You know what I mean? How far distance? How fast was it going? And, and, and we do this to ourselves. No, 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 no. Hold up that shield of faith. When it's quenched, Leave it there and don't go back. Dress up. Get dressed. Put the full armor on because where we live, where you live, is just as cold and problematic as Ephesus. And just as they needed the full armor, we also need the full armor of God. It was probably about two years ago, and I was going through something. And I was sitting at my mom's kitchen table with her. And she looked at me and she said, what do you need to do? What do you need to do? And I just, I hadn't even told her the whole situation because I I didn't want to burden her and I wasn't sure how much of it she'd understand. And she looks at me and she says, what do you need to do? What, there's something you need to do. What do you need to do? And I just looked at her and I said, put on the whole armor. Yes, you need to put on the whole armor of God. What's first? I need to shod my feet with the gospel of peace. Yes, and what does that mean? I said, I need to remember that it's all about going forward with the gospel and Satan is gonna try to detour me, distract me, and get me off the central purpose of my life, which is to herald the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, and what's next? What's next? Next, Uh, the breastplate of righteousness. Yes, and what does that mean? 
It means I need to put on Jesus Christ and what he's done and not stand in my own righteousness and all my sins are forgiven and I'm hidden in Jesus Christ. And anyone who wants to get to me has to first go through Jesus Christ. Yes, yes, yes. And what's next? Next, next. And I'm trying to remember Ephesians chapter six the best I can because I don't have it memorized. And I said, next is the helmet of salvation. Yes. And what does that mean? I said, it means I need to put it on my head and let my identity in Christ guard all my thoughts. And if it's not true, if it's not lovely, if it's not of good report, if it's not virtuous, then it does not belong in my thinking process. And I have to eschew it and put it away because it's, it's not true. She said, yes, what else? I had forgotten the belt of truth, the belt of truth. Yes, yes, yes. So what does that do? I said, it holds everything together. And I said, I need to believe the truth and not the lies because the lies are yelling at me. As my son Braden once said, Satan keeps yelling and Jesus just whispers. And we need the belt of truth to hold everything together. And she said, yes, yes, yes. And what else? And I said, I need the shield of faith. And what does the shield of faith do? I said, it quenches every fiery dart of the enemy. She said, how many? I said, every. And then I'm right across the table. I can't hear you. I said, every. And then, you know, my mom, always the preacher, again, every. Let me hear it with enthusiasm. Every. How many does that mean? It means every. Anything left out? No. And what is faith, Cheryl? Faith is believing that God is. That God is active in my life. That God sees. That God hears. That God knows. That God is working. And God will bring this to glory. Because all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And she said, and what's the last one? And this is where I knew the Holy Spirit was so on her. And I said, the last one is the sword of the Spirit. She said, and what is that? I said, it's the word of God. And she said, what do you do with that? I said, I hold on to it. And I never let go of it. In fact, they said when they tried to get the sword out of Shama's hand after he held the bean field, they couldn't because it was stuck fast. To the helm of the sword and they had to just pry it out of his hand and his hand still looked like it was holding the sword the sword of the spirit the word of God I need to hold on to the word of God these promises these truths are my perception my reality my promises my pathway we need to be dressed what piece of armor have you forgotten? You can always go back. You're going through something that seems to be getting to you. Go back and say, do I have it all on? Do you? Do you have the belt of truth? Are your feet shod with the preparation of gospel of peace? Do you have the helmet of salvation? Are you wearing the breastplate of righteousness? Do you, are you holding up the shield of faith? And do you have the sword of the spirit? If not, and let me just say this. I was loath to wear my friend's coat because it's my friend's coat and I didn't want to get it dirty. But she gave it to me to put on for New York City to stay warm. 
and I ended up putting it on. We have this armor here. It's been given to us by Jesus Christ. It's not an option. It's not like, well, I didn't want to borrow his helmet because I get a lot of rocks thrown at me and I didn't want to dent it. You know, sometimes we're so loath to put on the whole armor as if we can leave out a piece and, and still be okay. You're like, well, I'm saving that for holidays. No, we need to put on every piece every day. It's been given to us because we need it. Because we need it. And the Lord knows what we have need of. And this is what he's given us. For this time, this place, we need it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that when we are armed in you, when our identity is in you, when we are wearing the breastplate of righteousness, Lord, we are safe. Lord, not only are we safe, Lord, but we are conquerors because you are going before us. And every fiery dart is quenched, Lord, and we are safe and we are victorious. Lord, though the enemy may hurl the worst at us, we are safe in your armor. God, I pray for my sisters today. I pray that they would put on every piece as this song goes, put on the gospel armor, put on every piece with care. Lord, that we would put on every piece that you have given us for this time, this place. In Jesus' name, amen.